Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News political director Rick Klein. And I'm ABC News White House correspondent Karen Travers. And it is an emergency podcast, Karen, because (laughs) it's a national emergency. Actually, it's very fitting to have an emergency podcast on a day like this, a day unlike few others that we've witnessed uh, in the many, many uh, odd days that we have seen under the Trump presidency. This one is a particularly strange one. Uh, a long, meandering series of statements from the president. And uh, one crisis is out. We don't have a shutdown, but there's a new crisis, a constitutional one, a national emergency, Karen. Yeah, and the president isn't fighting with Congress anymore, so you can cross that off the list. And that's a good thing. The government's funded through the end of the fiscal year. Hooray. There's no government shutdown. But now the president has another fight on his hands, and this is a fight that he's going to have in court. Rick, the president, you know, just in this very long, rambling at times opening statement uh, where he was coming out to talk to us about declaring the national emergency. I mean, he talked about North Korea. He talked about China. He talked about a whole host of issues. And he just didn't seem like he felt that he was on solid ground to come out, make this declarative statement. I, I think it was notable. There were no teleprompters. That is not a good thing, I think, when anybody's going to come out and speak on legal issues, but especially this president who has a very strong tendency to go very, very off script. And sometimes this president, who is beyond fact challenged, as we've documented many times, uh, provides glimpses of uh, an unvarnished truth, at least the truth as he sees it. And you saw it, I think, in the meanderings uh, that we heard today of everything from North Korea and China and the stock market to the revelation that he was nominated by the prime minister (laughs) of Japan for the Nobel Prize. Is that right, Karen? Yeah, we get that in the middle of it, right? Mm -hmm. So all of that comes comes as part of this announcement, the much anticipated announcement of this national emergency. And I think you're on to something, Karen, that a, a confident President Trump just goes out there and declares it just says this is the reasons that we need to do it and it's happening and goodbye and good luck and uh, and then we move on we'll fight it out instead he found all sorts of reasons to, to meander around it and ultimately I think betrayed what what is a, a pretty weak political position and potentially a weak legal position well and, and this was an argument that he has been signaling or a, a move he's been signaling for months I mean a national emergency is not a surprise today he's talked about this they've kept this as the, you know their last card that they could throw out if he didn't get what he wanted from Congress. The question has been asked for months now, if it's such an emergency, why not just do this? If it's so urgent, take action. And the White House says the president wanted to see if he could do this through the legislative process. He wanted to see what Congress could give him. Well, they didn't give him what he wanted. So now he's looking for ways to make up several billions of dollars. But I think if you're trying to make this case to the American people that, yes, you know it's going to get challenged in court, and yes, this could take a long time to go through that process and the wall is not going to be, you know, digging is not starting next week. You would expect that he would come out and very forcefully say, I can do this. Here is exactly why 
And I think this is important because of the dire nature of this crisis. We did not hear that from the president on Friday. That's not how he presented this argument. And instead, he he tried to say, you know, I just have to. I know it's, I'm going to be challenged, but I've got to do this. Yeah. And, and I, and I want to play something because I think there was an element in, in what he said today that may undermine his own administration's arguments when it will be in court. And we're already seeing legal challenges in the state of California, New York, members of Congress. There's going to be multiple legal challenges from all over the place about maybe the national emergency, but also the way that he is then enacting it, finding money in all different parts of the federal budget, whether that's uh, civil asset fortresses out of the Treasury Department mm-hmm. or drug interdiction programs or military construction funds and saying, here it is, my magic $8 billion for the wall. He's going to be challenged on all of that. But he conceded, uh, I think, a critical point. Take a listen to this. I want to do it faster. I could do the wall over a longer period of time. I didn't need to do this, but I'd rather do it much faster. And I don't have to do it for the election. I've already done a lot of wall for the election, 2020. And the only reason we're up here talking about this is because of the election. Whoa, Karen, there's actually actually two big things there. Mm -hmm. Number one, saying, I, I didn't have to do this. Yeah. I, so I why did you? <laughs> right. Well, if it's a national emergency, let's, let's talk about that point. And then I want to move to the other point about, about the election. But mm-hmm. point one, if you didn't have to do this, then what's with the national emergency? And are you going to be able to get away with these extraordinary steps, the end run around Congress as a result of it? Right. And, and the question that the courts are going to be considering is, you know, does he have the authority to go around Congress, take money that's been appropriated for one thing, put it to something else? And the president will say, because this is such a crisis, yes, I I do have that authority because I have to take action. But he acknowledged he could take his time doing this and said I could do this over a longer period of time. I didn't need to do this, but he wants to do it faster. Well, just because you want to do something on your own timeline, that's not necessarily a legal argument to make. And it's not really even a legislative argument, too, I think. Uh, You know, there is a process of how money gets appropriated in Washington. This is pretty simple. But I also thought earlier in, in the opening statement or it was in a question, the president acknowledged, you know, he's new to politics. And that's why this didn't get done in his first two years, because Congress didn't jump on it. And he wasn't pushing because he was still getting, you know, his bearings, I think, in Washington. But again, that doesn't hold up in court that, you know, because you uh, didn't do it. Yeah, now it has yet. to get yeah. done. Yeah. And then the the other point that, that he made, and again, in the spirit of occasional, if accidental, honesty from the president, that uh, that he's done a lot before the election and, quote, the only reason we're up here talking about it is for the election. Now, he's describing that to Democrats playing politics. But, mm-hmm. man, that is a stark admission to my mind. The president just the other day at that rally in El Paso mm-hmm. finished the wall. This is about a political emergency just as much, if not more, than it is a real national emergency, Karen. And the president, once again, he said this so many times in the last couple of weeks, that, like, we're building wall. You know, walls have been built since I've taken office. And, like, we fact-checked this every time he says it. And there hasn't been any new construction since he took office. So to say I've already built a lot of wall for the 2020 campaign, like, okay, check that off the list. I don't need to keep doing it. But I think if you, like, pull back a little bit to 2015 and 2016, this was a key campaign promise. I'm going to build a wall. Who's going to pay for it? Mexico. Well, that's not happening. So if it's a two-part campaign promise, he can't deliver on part two. He's going to try everything he can to deliver on part one. And he is laying the groundwork for his 2020 campaign. And and now he's really putting this all on the line because he's done, I think you could say, everything he can through Congress. Now it's on him. And it certainly when you talk to le- uh, legal experts, this process in court 
could well play out after the 2020 election. I mean, they are not going to be having any groundbreaking ceremonies with the president down on the border uh, because this money could be tied up in court for nearly two years. And in fact, the president alluded to that. Karen, I'm a big fan of Schoolhouse Rock. Won't shock you to know. <laughs> and, you know, those little jingles about how a bill becomes a law. I'm a little bill up on Capitol mm-hmm. Hill. It's, it's stuck in my head for life and it rolls <laughs> on repeat. But suddenly there's another little jingle stuck in my head. Take a listen to the president. The order is signed. And uh, I'll sign the final papers as soon as I get into the Oval Office. And we will have a national emergency. And we will then be sued. And they will sue us in the Ninth Circuit, uh, even though it shouldn't be there. And we will possibly get a bad ruling. And then we'll get another bad ruling. And then we'll end up in the Supreme Court. And hopefully we'll get a fair shake. And we'll win in the Supreme Court, just like the ban. It's catchy, Karen. It what do you think? We just I learned mean, a lot about the legal process that's that's going to prevail from And here. I think it shows he has really thought about this a lot, too. <laughs> like He knows exactly how this is going to play out, and he's probably right that this is how it's going to play out. Uh, but he's clearly thought about this process now. And I think you're going to see him. He's already laid the groundwork that he's going to get, you know, uh, not the the thing he likes out of the Ninth Circuit. And then he has a new boogeyman to blame. So, you know, first it was Mexico not cooperating with him. Then it was Democrats who are not cooperating with him. And now it's going to be Obama judges who don't cooperate with him. And he can use all of that to turn to his supporters at the rallies he'll start doing this year and then in 2020 and say, I tried. I did the best I could, but I keep getting you know, blocked at every turn. And in fact, our colleagues, uh, John Carl, Catherine Falders, reported that uh, the Justice Department has already told the president, told mm-hmm. the White House, that they're likely to get re- uh, rejected in this. And that at the least courts, temporarily. Courts at least temporarily mm-hmm. to held up. And the travel ban, of course, is in his mind. He didn't mention today how many times they had to rewrite the travel ban right. to try to get it to pass constitutional muster. He made it sound like they just won when they got to the right court. But we know how this plays out. And I'll tell you, talking to Republicans in the last couple of weeks, some of them are just relieved. They don't like this idea at all. Many of them don't think the wall's a good idea. Many don't think the national emergency, a lot of them think the national emergency mm-hmm. is a terrible idea with terrible precedents for going forward. But they want it to be over. And I think you could feel the relief in Mitch McConnell's mm-hmm. voice and others just to say, OK, he's going to do this thing. We have a guy that is intent on doing this. He feels like he was elected on doing it. He's going to make it happen. At least we get to move on. And I think there was also this feeling of unnecessary drama this week. You know, it felt very similar to what we had in December, where we went back and looked. You had then House Speaker Paul Ryan on the record saying the president's going to sign this spending bill. Then you had Vice President Pence saying, or excuse me, this was back in March, actually, that mm-hmm. when the, the president was not really happy with a $1.3 billion, trillion dollar spending bill from uh, last year. He, he, he's going to sign it. Everything is fine. He's definitely going to sign it. This funds his priorities. Everything is great. And then the president tweets that he was thinking about a veto. He didn't threaten a veto, but just that he was throwing that veto word out there. And everybody goes bananas in Washington. And then I was in the room when the president ultimately signed that massive spending bill. And it was funny. When we were waiting for the president to come in, they brought in a little table. So you think, all right, they're going to put the bill on it. He'll sign it there. And then as the president got closer, the table got moved out. He came in and he just ranted for 15 plus minutes about how he hates this bill. He'll never sign one like this again, but fine, I'll do it. And I felt like this week we were getting to see that again, that, you know, everybody's saying, don't worry, this is fine. He's going to sign this. He doesn't want to shut down. But there's that element of drama. I mean, he's a television producer in his previous life, and he likes that sort of is he or isn't he coverage. And sure enough, we got to Thursday, the day before the 
deadline to avert the shutdown. And there were still a lot of questions about this. But ultimately, he begrudgingly signs it and says, because I can do this my way as well. And one other point I wanted to highlight, Karen, out of this, because out of many other things that he, he, he did on this, there were so many different political strands. But it, he couldn't let the moment go without uh, a swipe or two at, uh, at a particular person that um, we may have some idea who he's talking about. Take a listen. <laughs> Would have been great to have done it earlier, but I was a little new to the job, a little new to the profession. And we had a little disappointment for the first year and a half. People that should have stepped up did not step up. Now, the president <laughs> not was naming asked. names. The president was asked, Kelly O'Donnell <laughs> asked uh, directly, are you talking about Paul Ryan? I don't know. He didn't feel like naming names. He said, but, I don't man, want to talk about that right now. <laughs> there's a certain former Speaker of the mm-hmm. House who, back in Wisconsin at this moment, has got to be screaming at the TV uh, yeah. because that is a pretty clear shot at Paul Ryan, who. Uh, I mean, we can speculate about others who might be involved in that, but um, the president has made clear his frustration mm-hmm. with the, the Republican-led House. Now it's a Democratic-led House, mm-hmm. and things have gotten a lot harder for him. And to be fair to Paul Ryan and company, they're among those who told the president, you're not going to get a better deal when Nancy Pelosi takes over. And, and guess they what? still thought they could. That's the amazing thing. Th- they, that's right. The White House did. And guess what? They got a worse deal, as they we They absolutely know. did. I mean, the idea that the White House was going to be in a better negotiating position after Nancy Pelosi became Speaker was just very bad. Baffling. And, you know, that's an argument that the Democrats would make. Like, you had two years to try and do this. And now we're the ones that are blocking this. Like, let's just look at how the going back to your favorite song of how a bill becomes a law. You know, they, they there there wasn't even attempts to get this all done. So I think, you know, he said he didn't want to talk about it, but it was quite clear he was talking about House Speaker Paul Ryan there. And I think that's how the president will rewrite those first two years when if by November 2020 there hasn't been a single hole dug for the wall, he'll say, well, we missed that opportunity the first two years. And it was that guy's fault, and he's gone, yep. and good riddance, and moving on. Uh, it is, <laughs> uh, And we are moving on because this, this chapter would appear is closed, but as we said, a more interesting one opening up. Karen Travers, thank you for very ably filling in for the – very missing, uh, notably missing John Carl today. We appreciate it, Karen. <laughs> Big shoes to fill. <laughs> not at, no, 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 not at all. Thank you, Karen. It's, <laughs> it's been, you. A, been a pleasure having you. We're going to take a quick break. When we're back, we're going to talk to one of the 2020 presidential candidates, Mayor Pete Buttigieg of South Bend, Indiana. Is it still a struggle to get that good night's sleep? Then maybe it's time to try the Purple Mattress. It's made out of a new material that keeps it firm and soft, so it keeps everything supported while still feeling really comfortable. Try it now with a 100-night risk-free trial along with free shipping and returns. And if you order one, you'll get a free purple pillow with the purchase of a mattress. Just text POWERHOUSE to 474747. The only way to get this free pillow is to text POWERHOUSE to 474747. Message and data rates may apply. When it comes to hiring, you don't have time to waste. You need help getting to your short list of qualified candidates fast. That's why you need Indeed.com. Get started today at Indeed.com slash powerhouse. That's Indeed.com slash powerhouse. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. Pleased to be joined here in our studio in Washington by Mayor Pete Buttigieg of the great city of South Bend, Indiana, a declared pres- presidential candidate in 2020. Mayor Pete, uh, welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. Thanks for having us on. Uh, what's your favorite uh, early voting state so far? 
Well, uh, the one we've been to so far the most is Iowa, and that's been uh, great. Obviously, it's in driving distance. It's a familiar political culture for us coming out of Indiana, but we'll be visiting New Hampshire tomorrow and really looking forward to getting to know folks up there, too. You're supposed to say you like them all equally. We do like them all equally, of course, but those are the ones we're going to at the moment. Got it. Well, (laughs) we'll we'll talk a little bit about your your campaign. I want to start in the news of the president with this uh, emergency declaration today, a pretty extraordinary announcement. Uh, a meandering statement in 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 part, but uh, coupled now with his vow to spend upwards of eight billion dollars on uh, on the border wall, what's your reaction to what you heard from the president this morning? You know, stream of consciousness without a whole lot of consciousness. Uh, it's uh, it's a huge concern when policy is made in in such a rambling fashion. But on some level, it's nothing new, right? I, I think the deeper question is one of constitutional power, separation of powers, and whether conservatives are going to continue to be uh, skeptical of uh, power grabs by the executive or whether they're okay with it when that executive has an R next to his name. Look, we face some major issues that I would argue perhaps do rise to the level of national emergency, like climate change, like gun violence. But the idea that this constitutes the kind of emergency that justifies going around Congress Congress, in order to do something most Americans disagree with, simply does not compute. You're an executive. You run a city in South Bend. Uh, what what would be your guiding principle, given the standards that the president seems to be setting here, expanding the use of, uh, of executive power, expanding the use of national emergencies? Would you declare a national emergency to support something like climate change, for instance? Uh, There, I think we probably should. Uh, Now, that being said, I would prefer to just use uh, channels that that we have through, for example, the legislative body, like I do in South Bend, right? I'm an executive. I got a legislature. Uh, If I want to get something in the budget, the best time to do that is during budget season. But there have been times when I've had to declare an emergency, usually related to weather. One time there was a plane crash into a neighborhood, and, and you deal with things as they come. The thing about climate change is, unlike many other emergencies, we see it coming. And so it really should be something that our long-term policy and our immediate policy plans accommodate. If it's not, though, I mean, there certainly has to be a level of emergency action on that. And that's, uh, frankly, the the, uh, underlying philosophy of the Green New Deal, to treat climate change uh, for the emergency that it is, to acknowledge that the destructive power of what's happening to our climate is no less in scale, perhaps more, than something like a Great Depression or, or even a world war, and that we ought to have a commensurate level of American effort go into resolving it. So you, you, get, you become president. Congress doesn't pass a Green New Deal or something like it. Do you, do you go for a national emergency? And what does that mean beyond the declaration? What are the appropriate limits to what a president could do to support a national emergency? I don't know that I'm ready to go into the blow-by-blow of a hypothetical scenario like that. Because again, I think the best thing we can do is lead the American people to give Congress no choice but to do the right thing. Uh, and I think the, the center of gravity of the American people is in a place where they want to see action on this. Even corporate America, uh, which resisted a sensible climate policy for a long time, has come to realize that it's uh, necessary for uh, the survival of their business as well of, as of our way of life to make sure that we're paying some attention uh, to the consequences of, uh, uh, and frank- frankly, adapting to climate change that is already taking place and already impacting us in ways that range from uh, you know extreme flooding in my part of the country to uh, parts of California catching on fire. This is not a hypothetical issue. It's not a theoretical issue. It calls for policy action today, and uh, it can't come a moment too soon. 
So this was a big week for uh, for the for progressives, for the political left. Uh, the Green New Deal gets its rollout, of course. Uh, big victory um, for progressives in New York City, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez leading the charge against Amazon. Now, you've come out, and I know you're not you, – you don't fall into the labels of left-right and progressivism uh, as much as something that you're, you're, try, you're seeking to reject with your campaign. You've said that. But you've supported the Green New Deal. You support Medicare for All. Do you share some concern that we're beginning to hear voice from people like Senator Sherrod Brown, among others, to say this party can't just go with every left-leaning idea, every progressive idea. You can't go that fast and you can't win an election that way if you go far left. I think we need to go with good ideas and we worry about how good they are before we worry about how far left or how right they are. You know, maybe this is the mayor in me, but uh, I'm looking for problem solving. And sometimes that puts you in a place that's considered ideologically centrist. But uh, often, perhaps more often than not, it puts you in a place that's left of center. And if your idea is right, then you should be able to convince people that it's the right one. For far too long, the Democratic Party has been negotiating against ourselves, coming up with conservative proposals in hopes of uh, appeasing conservatives uh, in a way that actually just helped the entire center of gravity of the American political conversation itself shift to the right, to where we were on the defensive, even on issues uh, like, for example, universal background checks, uh, where the vast majority of Americans or even Republicans agreed with our supposedly leftward position. Could Medicare for all, Green New Deal, could that be a Democratic banner that would carry Indiana? Potentially, under the right circumstances. Look, Indiana went blue once in the last, I think, 40 or 50 years. Barack Obama. Uh, and that was the for first Barack time, Obama, yeah. who was not necessarily the most conservative Democrat who ever ran. Um, and the last time it did so before that was for LBJ, who on domestic policy was about as progressive as it gets. So, <clears throat> you know, I think what people in Indiana or anywhere else in the country are looking for is somebody who cares about them, who understands policy uh, not for its own sake, but as something that's going to make our lives on the ground in communities like South Bend, better or worse, and is in it for the right reasons. Uh, I want to talk about the the announcement from the Democratic National Committee uh, in, in the last uh, day or so about the presidential debates. Uh, you, before you ran for president, you tried to become DNC chair. So this might have been your job. But uh, I, I imagine you've had a chance to, to look at what they're saying about the qualifications for the first two debates, a 1% uh, polling threshold or 65,000 unique donors uh, as, the, as the threshold for qualification. First, did, did the DNC get it right in terms of balancing a lot of the, the needs um, and the expectations after last cycle? Yeah, I think it's as good a balance as any that could be drawn. I think equally important, if not more so, is the fact that they decided not to have a undercard or kiddie table style Right, they're talking debate. about back-to-back debates, the yeah, first I, two. I think that's a really important response to the uh, accusations of unfairness that were leveled at the DNC before. Uh, also, a bit selfishly, I think that's an environment that's good for newcomers and underdogs. Obviously, I'm, I'm both of those. Uh, and so if we're in that scenario, you know, I think uh, being able to divide, even at random if necessarily, if necessary, divide a, a field into one that uh, voters can understand one chunk at a time, uh, I think that's healthy. And I think any campaign should be prepared. Uh, to mount the level of support that it would uh, it would take to meet those criteria. There's very little you can do directly to get poll numbers up, other than appearing on powerhouse politics. I, I might argue. <laughs> I uh, keep in our, coming in. There. Exactly, but uh, but but you can to some degree try to control that number of donors. How, give us a sense of what sixty five thousand unique donors means. Is that a threshold that is easy to meet, hard to meet? How confident are you that you'll get to that level? Well, there's only one way to find out for sure, which is to go out there and do it. I'll tell you that on our exploratory committee. Uh, the day we got it up and running, by, by the end of that day, we'd received contributions from every one of uh, the 50 states uh, plus D.C. 
So uh, I think that, uh, you know, you've got to have that kind of widespread grassroots support in order to get anywhere politically. Remember, what they're looking for is not so much uh, things that will cause you to be significant, but things that reflect uh, the significance of your effort. And I think a campaign that wants to stand on its own two feet will have to be able to show uh, support in a number of different ways, from the kind of popular support that's uh, measured uh, in terms of the, the polls, to uh, the kind of grassroots financial support that uh, they're trying to capture with that 65,000 level. Um, there are any number of different ways and formulas they could have come up with, but uh, this seems to me as, as good as any and a fair one to start out with. Uh, earlier this week, you may have seen the, the clips making the rounds. Uh, Senator Kamala Harris was asked about her personal experience with marijuana. I'm curious your experience with marijuana as the youngest candidate in the, in the field right now uh, and how that informs your view of what should be done on a policy level. Yeah, so I disclosed in the book that a handful of times I, I did that too when I was uh, when I was in high school and, and early in college. Uh, I think I'm not sure that qualifies me to, to as be an any expert. More, or <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I don't know that, that makes me any more informed on on policy than anybody else. I will say, uh, as somebody who is very attuned to uh, the the harms done by mass incarceration in our country. Uh, to say nothing of the racial inequality that's associated with enforcement of some of these laws, that uh, we need to take a hard look at nonviolent drug offense uh, and, and how those are penalized in this country. There was some step forward on a bipartisan basis at the federal level, which is a start. Uh, and I think that uh, uh, common sense decriminalization of marijuana uh, is something we need to do. Uh, they're doing it uh, about six miles from my house. It's happening in Michigan right mm -hmm. now. Um, and we will learn from these early states that have led the way on that um, because there are, of course, many pitfalls. Uh, this doesn't necessarily make it safe. Uh, but just because something isn't safe uh, doesn't mean that uh, uh, throwing people in jail is a good response to it. As you know, Michigan and other states that have legalized, they have to deal with a hodgepodge of regulations. It's still illegal at the federal level. That makes them have to go as like a quasi black market, not really black market. Yeah, they have market, to create their own banking system. It's awkward. It's complicated. a cash business and, yeah. because they're not. They can't go through federally regulated banks. But you mentioned um, decriminalization. That's not the same legalization. Yeah, Do you I, see a distinction there. You don't think it's something that should be legalized at the federal level. You know, I think there are any number of ways that we can approach this. Uh, I don't have a problem with moving toward legalization. I think we need to move toward it in a smart way, though, especially when you think about some of the uh, impacts that this has, things that haven't, people haven't thought about, like the way that the financial sector responds to the patchwork of uh, regulatory responses we're going to have across the states. It would be nice to harmonize something like this uh, between the states and the federal government. If that's too much to ask, then maybe federal policy will just have to lead the way. So before we let you go, the, uh, the, I, I always, when I talk to presidential candidates, either in settings like this or other settings, people love to talk about what the stories they're hearing and the feedback that they're getting. What is the what's the biggest takeaway that you have from the conversations? Not as it affects you and, and your ambitions, but about yeah. what 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 you've learned, legitimately learned, in your early travels. I'm seeing people who are looking for big ideas and they want to have big conversations. You know, uh, in Iowa, for example, I was going through my briefings on you know very detailed kind of parochial issues that you're supposed to uh, uh, be you know on on point for, even if you're not familiar with these backyard questions in Iowa. Um, I didn't get one question about ethanol, for example. Not that that's not important, but it's interesting that I didn't get one question in uh, five or six appearances in Iowa. But I got a lot of questions about foreign policy, the way the U.S. fits in the world, as well as questions about where our democracy is headed. I think people, uh, just because of this moment uh, where we have basically a, a realignment, I mean, this deep tectonic shift in American life and certainly in American political life, nobody knows quite where it's going. 
And anybody who wants to be in the 2020 conversation needs to have an account of where they're trying to take things, not just in office, not just in 2020, but really what's the next era of American politics going to look like for both parties? And those seem to be the questions on the minds of the people who showed up in the coffee shops and the living rooms of the places I was going to. All right. Mayor Pete Buttigieg from South Bend, Indiana, candidate for president in 2020. Thanks for being here on Powerhouse Politics. Appreciate Thanks for having it. me. That does it for this edition of Powerhouse Politics. Our thanks to the whole producing team, Angie Yak, Avery Miller, and the man behind the controls, Trevor Hastings. I'm Rick Klein. We'll catch you next time.